welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make, with your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash why make podcast or the Patreon link on our website. On episode 42 of Why Make, we talk with Tom Lozier, an educator, furniture maker, and box maker who recently retired as the head of the furniture design and woodworking program at UW-Madison, where he has taught since 1991. Tom designs and builds one-of-a-kind functional and dysfunctional objects that are often carved and painted. His work is primarily based on and uses the history of design and object making as a starting point for developing new forms and meaning. We talk with Tom about his exploration and investigation of unconventional furniture forms, including chests, bandsaw boxes, and chairs. One example is his Shaker and Memphis-inspired folding chair. So get out your color wheel and a copy of Joseph Albers' Interaction of Color and enjoy our conversation with Tom Lozier. All right, well... Welcome to Why Make. We are here with Tom Lozier. Welcome to Why Make, Tom. Thank you. Nice to be here. In the typical fashion, we're going to start off with the Why Make question, which Eric's going to shoot at you real quick. Right. And the the Why Make softball is what is your first memory of making something? Oh, yeah. So um, I grew up in Cambridge, Mass., and um, there was a sort of a storefront art center oriented towards kids that was in our, in the neighborhood not too far away and i i think my parents put, gave me a photography workshop and we made photograms and i think that i thought that photograms were super cool you know as a way to start to learn how to unpack photography and Im- image making and so i i just remember making photograms and um it's interesting because a few years ago i i was a resident artist at Anderson Ranch and I made cyanotypes and it was really sort of like a return return to the um, photograms. And I have to ask, because I'm not familiar with the term, uh, what exactly are photograms? Yeah. Oh, so you just take, uh, in our case, I think in the kids' class, we took um, photographic paper, you know, the paper that you would print on from an enlarger and took it out in a dark room and then put objects on it that would obscure a block part of a light path. And then you turn on the regular light and you make a picture. Uh, but you're not using an enlarger and a negative. You're using objects on top of the photographic paper. And so you can play with objects. Obviously, you get shadows at solid shapes, but you can play with transparency and pattern and the way things are laid out. And then you take the paper and develop it in the dark room, just like you would. It was a print exposed in a larger with a negative. Oh, that's very cool. Wow. And yet, cyanotypes work the same. Cyanotypes work the same way. Cyanotypes produce beautiful um, images if you put if you use a negative in an enlarger on on paper treated with the cyanotype chemicals. It produces a beautiful blue blue and white image instead of a black and white mm-hmm. image. But my engagement with cyanotypes was not with an enlarger and a negative. It was, again, with objects, sort of furniture-related objects and shadows that I played with. Wow. So that you, you, you started out pretty, pretty early with doing some, I don't know, I, I, that's kind of a technical thing for 
doing that so young? It's pretty simple. <laughs> well, it, it's simple, but it's, you know, it's not like, oh, I built a tree house or, <laughs> you know, you're, yeah. you got, you got right into some, some pretty, yeah. pretty interesting stuff. So Tom, how old, how old were you when, when, uh, I was afraid you were going to ask. I'm not sure. <laughs> I bet pretty. I bet pretty young. I bet. I bet like seven or eight, something like that. Were Were your parents artists? Were they Were they? No. Uh, they were interested in art. My mom. Um, the, the, my parents are were uh, Jewish refugees from Germany, and so they started out sort of with very little. And um, my dad eventually mm -hmm. became a, a lawyer, but my mom made enamel jewelry pretty aggressively for a long time and sold that enamel jewelry. And my memory is they always saved the money that she made on her jewelry in a sort of a separate pool for tra for trips, travel and trips that we took. Um, so yeah, she, she made things and sold at sort of, you know, Cambridge mass versions of art fairs. And, um, so she was very interested in, in art. Um, but yeah, I ended right. up as an artist and I have a brother who's a Harvard MBA and a sister who's a physician. So who knows? Everything goes down its own path. So it's the more typical, the more typical. Yeah. But I think there was an awareness and an, there was plenty of art in the house. Yeah. Right. And what was your path in the arts after seven? Did you take more art classes? Oh, gosh. Okay. So I, um, I went to an elementary school in Cambridge, which sort of prided itself on having a, you know, an, a large art program. And not only that, it had a specifically, it had a very large wood shop. It had a large enough wood shop that there were two permanent wood faculty. One of them, one one of the teachers was called Mr. Maple, which is kind of funny for the, but um, I and I did of course I did some woodworking there, but I can't say I was I wasn't really like a wood fiend. I wasn't even one of the people you know that spent the most time in in the wood shop, so I can't say that that's necessarily what got it started. And then uh, I went to a high school, which actually also had a very good art program. And the main thing I did there was um, ceramics. And there was a really fantastic um, ceramics professor named Bob Lucas. It's kind of interesting because in your senior year, you get to do a senior project. And another senior student and I, we actually lived with him in his mill building. But anyway, so he had us, I think, for even as much as a month, we lived at his building and made ceramics in his professional ceramic studio because he would commute up to Boston to teach uh, the ceramics courses. So I did a lot of ceramics. And then um, after high school, I was accepted into college. And it was a period where colleges, or at least the college I was accepted into, when you got accepted, they actually sent you a letter and said, if you want to defer for a year and do something out in the world before you come to college will hold your place and guarantee your place you won't have to reapply. And I thought that was a pretty swell idea. And um, so I, I did have a year between high school and college. And I did a couple things. It's really interesting. The president of the college wrote um, a book called Blue Collar. And he took off his suit and tie and he walked off the university campus with empty pockets and he went to um he went and did blue collar jobs and he did this for 
a, a year. He dropped out for a year, and he just took blue-collar jobs and supported himself with blue-collar jobs, except he was on the Federal Reserve, and so he had to go to four Federal Reserve meetings during the year. So he, he had suits that he could pick up on his way to the meeting. <laughs> but anyways, that's where the value, I thought it was pretty cool, um, what he did, and that's where that value of having some real-world experience came from. And it was this was Haverford College. What did you do during that your your gap year, as they say? I did a couple different art related things. I worked in a um, production ceramics studio that actually made um, hanging planters. That we would look at them as sort of hippie planters now, but they were you know really well made porcelain planters. And the woman that ran that studio did the Rhinebeck Craft Fair. And so I worked, I worked for her doing various different things. And at some points I was even a production thrower where you got paid by the planter. And um, it's a pretty interesting experience. And then I also got to go to the Rhinebeck Craft Fair and observe how it worked when it was sort of at its height in Rhinebeck, New York, and watch how she, she made it work. So I worked there a couple of days a week. And then a couple of day, days a week I worked in a really interesting shop it was a teaching shop, and it, you know, it was before places like the Center for Furniture Craftsmanship and all these other places existed. But it was a, a friend of my parents from Cambridge started this place, and he, got, because I was available and I was a volunteer, he sort of took me on as a shop helper and taught me things, and then I would do things around the shop, but he left me plenty of time to make my own projects. So I still have a sort of a big pine toolbox that I made there. And he got me kind of interested in um, woodworking. I think that was the first time. And then I also had a carpentry job with a carpentry outfit that just turned out to be really fantastic. I am still very good friends with one of the other carpenters that I worked with that summer that sort of took me under his wing and mm -hmm. showed me how to hold the screw gun and shoot drywall screws and everything. We had some really cool jobs working on a boathouse along the Charles River in Cambridge. And um, I just was really lucky that it was a really interesting crew. So I learned quite a bit of carpentry doing that. And then I also worked in a cabinet shop. And this is this is even more than Mr. Maple, who taught me in elementary school. The guy who ran that company was called Chip Carpenter, believe it or not. That was honestly his name. And um, <clears throat> that was a, probably a three or four person shop and I was the low person and it was plywood cabinet construction but very good and there was one guy who sort of worked on the saw all day cutting up sheets of plywood and I learned so much just watching him and sometimes helping him and then I um, I did go to Haverford College outside of Pennsylvania and um, it's really funny because I, I know now that they had some really good art faculty there, but it didn't click for me, and I didn't really do any art for four years. I think I had some some jobs over the summer that were related to making things with my hands. But at Haverford, I, I tried some of the art things, but I just didn't really click. And I think it was a situation where they were the, art, the faculty were very serious teachers, and very committed, but they didn't um, spoon-feed it to you, and they really wanted commitment from the students. And uh, I just never quite connected. And I mean, thinking back about it, I'm sort of thinking out loud here, but I think drawing has never been the sort of my main creative outlet. And I draw plenty, you know, 
um, in different ways and for different purposes, but it's not, um, drawing isn't really the core of my artistic practice. And, and they were more fine art oriented with um, drawing and painting, drawing and painting and sculpture, sort of traditional approaches to sculpture. So it didn't click for me until I had a much more um, academic uh, orientation during those four years at Haverford. And um, I guess I would say maybe the most valuable thing I got out of my time at Haverford was writing skills. And it, it's interesting, but I just feel like writing skills have helped me so much with everything the rest of my life. So I would, you know, I wouldn't give that up. And I, I mean, I think most of my writing skills come from Haverford. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I, I, I studied journalism and public relations um, for my BA. Um, I don't regret that at all. Yeah. And actually, I started off in sociology and anthropology and then realized that yeah. I ended up enjoying writing more now now why did you end up falling into to social and, and anthropology is that kind of what was there or did you have an interest in it or no the faculty were the coolest faculty and i did uh, and so the sociology and anthropology department was three faculty people it was a combined department and they were the coolest faculty and they i felt like they attracted the coolest students so uh, i started taking classes and um, so one of the faculty, he, it's kind of unbelievable if you look at how old I am, but one of my faculty members is still teaching there, um, and it's pretty amazing. So he was a really interesting guy. He was young faculty when I was there, of course, but he would have us all over to his house, and we would sit in a circle, and, and he would serve tea, a sort of ritualistic tea service while we talked through whatever we were talking through. And then the other guy was a local Philadelphia guy who he's probably my favorite faculty person and he had had a lot of life experiences and he had us do field work in neighborhoods in philadelphia and and um we talked about some pretty amazing subject matter including a lot of stuff about compulsive gambling um and how it works and how it's, it is in the community and we would go to so real urban anthropology yeah, we would go to the we went to the horse track and uh, observed people and just individually we didn't do any of this as groups but we we would sort of observe and do write field notes and so it was real on the ground stuff well i was going to say you know when i read that part of your uh your resume, it seemed to make perfect sense in terms of looking at your later work because you've done a lot of public art pieces, oh, yeah. specifically a lot of public seating pieces. And I think a large part of that is really observing how people act in public spaces and how they sit. I mean, if you want, really want to approach you know, public seating pieces in the correct way, you have to do that. And I imagine you probably got some of those skills going out into the field and really doing that. Well, that's really interesting. I don't, <laughs> no, that's really interesting observation. We can circle back to that. I don't think in college I was looking at how people sit. <laughs> I do, I think what I'm interested. Well, no, not, not so much of looking how people sit, but observing people in their natural environment and yeah. how they respond and yeah. react. Yeah. And so the interest in public seating really has to do with how people organize themselves as groups and, and it's all, it's about social interaction. And that's kind of, that's really what I'm interested in with the public seating. And, I'm maybe more interested in how chairs get organized in relation to each other or more complex seating where more than one person sits on the seat and get organized in certain sort of ways to create certain sort of interactions. 
Well, actually, I mean, launching right into that, I, I, chairs are a large part of the body of work yeah. you've done. You've done many chairs, yeah. including with the, the first piece I saw of yours, which is a chair piece, and the first piece Rob saw of yours, which is a different chair piece, but your your iconic folding chair, which it's it, it's kind of funny because my take on that piece is, is that it's Shaker meets Memphis. It's... Uh, <laughs> If yeah. a Tory Satsas had been a had been a shaker and was hanging his piece up on the wall every day as sort yeah. of a ritualistic experience, um, I imagine it has nothing to do with that because I know yeah. later that you've really explored you've explored the whole relationship between two D and three D. But what when was that piece done and uh, what is what's what's the story? Yeah, no, I can build the bridge really quickly because we're almost there actually. So we're th say we're through college. And so then, um, I, I was, my home base was still Cambridge, Mass. And I had a friend who grew up across the street from me who's a very well known furniture maker, Mitch Ryerson. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but so yes, Mitch grew up yeah. across the street from me. And he had done a bunch of interesting things. He had gone to a boat building school in northern, northern, northern Maine in Lubeck. This wasn't the, um, gentleman woodworker boat building school. This was a hardcore Maine lobster boat building school run by the state of Maine in Lubeck, which is all the way at the end of the coast. And I had visited him there and seen that program, and it was really cool. So he got this set of woodworking skills, and he'd, he'd done some other things, and I was always really interested and admired his way about going going about and learning his skills. And then he um, mm -hmm. ended up enrolling in the program in artisanry, which was part of Boston University. And um, so he was a student there. When I would come back to Boston, I would visit him. And so I saw how that program worked. It was a really interesting program. Boston University has a very good art department, very strong art department. But they started the school, the program, in artisanry, independent of the art school, hmm. trying to acknowledge that in the crafts, one of the ways that people learn is through an apprenticeship kind of system. And so they hired faculty that were considered craft masters, and they invented their own degree, okay. which was a really bad idea, which was a CM, a Certificate of Mastery. <laughs> it's a nice idea and has great values behind it, but nobody knew what it was. And so they eventually backed off from that. That was mm -hmm. okay. But the program had a really great faculty and a great sort of thought process behind it. And so Mitch was enrolled there, and I would visit him. I think maybe I took a summer course after I graduated from college, and I really loved it. And I would say that was um, the first thing that I did, the first situation where I really loved working until 2, 3 in the morning, and not because I had to read a book to get ready for a test the next day, but just because I really loved the process and I was learning so much partly from the faculty, but partly from an extremely talented student body that they recruited to that program. And what happened was in the fall, I think that they had a student who didn't show up, and I was right there, and so um, they kind of offered me a spot, and I enrolled, and I made a mistake at that point. I, they had an undergraduate program and this graduate program in the Certificate of Mastery, but I didn't feel, I sort of self-censored myself, which was probably a mistake. I didn't feel like I had the skills compared to the rest of the students that were in the Certificate of Mastery uh -huh. program. So I put myself back in the undergraduate program. 
and uh, and so I got a second undergraduate degree over three years. But now we're connecting up mm-hmm. to the we're getting close to the origins of the folding chair. And so the the program at Boston University had, um, as I said, amazing students and Tom Hucker and Jim Fawcett and Charlie Mark and um, Wendy Marayama had just left right before I got there, and she'd gone on to graduate school at, at RIT. Professors were Alphonse Mattia and Jerry Osgood, and they were each mm-hmm. quite different from the other, uh, but both really, really fantastic. The work that was being done was um, sort of the European furniture-making tradition, and J- Jerry had kind of a Scandinavian training, so he was very interested in joinery and line, and of mm-hmm. course he's very known for his bent laminations, um, and very sort of qu- super quiet, understated teacher. And Alphonse was a little more connected to um, sort of progress, more kind of cutting edge and progressive things. And <clears throat> I remember Alphonse would um, go on road trips and shoot, visit woodworkers and shoot a lot of 35 millimeter slides and bring them back and show us carousels of slides of what people were doing in different places. That's kind of how we found out about things. Um, mm-hmm. And um, so they had a fairly structured curriculum. And as you got close to the end, I would say it was probably in your senior year, one of the projects was to make a design for production. And I think that was there. You know, I think the, I, the idea was that graduates from this program were going to set up their own shops, um, sort of, you know, I think the vision for many people in that program was to have a their own shop where they work by themselves or with one or two people producing one-of-a-kind objects. And so I think the idea behind the project was to give yourself something that where you could maybe make multiples and maybe think about efficiency and, and working more quickly. But so <clears throat> the idea was to make a production item, and most people made a chair, actually, and so they would make a set of a set of chairs, and then some. often people would also make a dining table, so a dining table and a set of chairs became one of the things people did towards the end of their time in the program. And I, I somehow got, I think somewhere in the air, there must have been the idea about pulling parts out of a single sheet of plywood, and, and that struck me as being, you know, efficient and interesting to think about how do you pull a three-dimensional object efficiently out of a sheet of plywood. And that's really where it started. I, I mean, the other thing that's interesting about the folding chair is that if you, if it was someone made it today, you'd look at it and say, oh, CNC, it's a CNC project. So the idea of cutting parts out of a sheet of plywood is everywhere today because it's what you do when you stick a sheet on a CNC router. But I don't think it was as out there back then. And, and so it's kind of interesting. Um, and, and so when I made it, it was making, templates that would then be stuck on top of pieces of plywood that were um, cut out roughly and slightly oversized, and then using a flush trim bit on a router to cut each part. So it's sort of mechanical. Well, you know, the difference is back then when you guys were talking production, production meant an entirely different thing. Production objects were still, at least in individual shops, largely handmade. Right. Um, Production these days means an entire, it means an entire, it's an entirely different concept. The fact that you could, those pieces could never 
you'd never have to do anything other than draw those pieces in a computer screen. Right. And, and, and model the whole piece in a computer and then have the CNC spit it out and you put it together. Right. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very different notion of craft. So I, I also am, I'm interested in kinetic things. I think that comes up throughout my body of work. And I was also interested in this notion of things moving from two dimensions to three dimensions, being sort of flat, and then also having the potential to be a three-dimensional object. And I was, you're, you're so right about your earlier comment. As t I was and still am totally in love with the Shaker aesthetic. And um, I don't know, I can't remember at that point if I'd visited any of the Shaker communities. I'm pretty sure I'd been to Hancock and Western Mass. Um, but over the year, by now I know I've been, I think I've been to every Shaker community that's open to the public. And um, so that has is been a huge influence on me. And I, I just love that, um, I love that aesthetic. And you're also spot on because the Memphis, what was happening in Memphis um, was going on at exactly the same time. And so um, Alphonse was bringing his slide carousels back, like I mentioned. But the other, well, another really important source was the Italian design magazines, especially Domus, D-O-M-U-S, that you could get in the library. And Domus was just crazy because in the center of Harvard Square in Cambridge, there's a really amazing, I think it might be gone now, but there's a really amazing newsstand that stocked international periodicals and magazines so you could buy domus there but it was like really expensive i mean it might have been 20 bucks back then you know it's just a lot of money uh, but anyways the domus issues and abitare they were really valuable and i know that we sort of poured over them and that was a way that uh, we had a little bit of a sense of what was going on with memphis and uh, i mean talking about memphis i you know, with the perspective that I have on it now, it was really exciting because it was so um, contradictory to that sort of natural wood aesthetic, which was all, all around in the woodworking programs in the U.S. And it was contradictory and it was sort of um, uh, opened things up in a really interesting way. But I would also say I didn't I don't necessarily love Memphis pieces there's very few memphis pieces that i think are really fantastic pieces or that work in the way that i like a piece to work aesthetically um but i think memphis was incredibly important for sort of loosening things up and saying anything is okay you can try it you can try anything you can juxtapose uh, really dissimilar materials shapes forms processes uh, so it was really important in that way and in the beginning, we really saw it mostly in, in Domus and Abitare. Eventually, of course, there started to be lots of books available about it. Um, that, that was really great. But it was just this sort of thing that was out there. I think in my case, it meant that I started to experiment with color. And so the color was really important because I, would, I made the, the folding chairs out of Baltic birch plywood, two sheets of half-inch glued together so I had an inch of thickness. And I wasn't really after, you know, a Scandinavian laminated edge aesthetic. And, and so I started experimenting. I had already been experimenting with color, but the folding chairs were really in many ways about color and the use of color. And in the case of the folding chairs, they were about using color to exaggerate the lines and the planes. So very often it was about particularly making the edges of the plywood stand out through the way I handled color. 
so that one saw the edges of the planes as the planes moved through space and went through their process of unfolding. So anyways, what happened with the folding chair was I got this sort of idea, and I did it as a drawing for a long time, and and just sort of, it was a flat drawing, and then it was a three-dimensional drawing, and trying to figure out how the parts moved and how it worked. And it made my head hurt after a while. I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out completely on paper. So I decided I would make a prototype, and so I made a prototype. And the prototype has three legs, and um, it's more of a sculpture about a chair than it is a chair. But I will say that it came out a little, it worked better than I might have predicted it was going to work. And it, it worked, you know, it worked. And actually, you could sit on it as long as you paid attention to what your right front leg was doing. It, it wasn't, you wouldn't, you weren't going to tip over. Um, you could if you tried. And so I, you know, then it was a question of sort of for where do I go from here if this is the prototype? And rather than go in the direction of making it more a sculpture about a chair, I felt like it was better as a, design object that really tried to be as functional as it could be. And so I did some uh, extra engineering and figured out how the fourth leg worked and some other small refinements. And I think I made a run. I then, and then I moved into the thing of making them in runs or additions. So I did additions of six. I think I did six, six, 12, and 12. I'm, I think there's 37 of them out there in the world. And um, so I made a, a run of six. And from kind of from the beginning, I treated them as pairs because they had this idea that one hangs on the wall and one, and then it, it can be either hung on the wall or open. So I liked the pair format where you could have one on the wall and you could have one open and, um, and see it in both formations. So mostly I made them as pairs of chairs. And, each, and so it was a production chair in that the fabrication of it stayed consistent I then, once the fabrication was done and I moved into the painting, I tried a lot of different things with the painting. I did a lot of different sort of hand-painted surfaces. So it kind of was a production chair, and then it had this sort of handmade aspect with the finishes. And in my vision, I was going to be able to subcontract all these parts out and get them back, get a kit of parts back, and then I would just be able to assemble it. Um, and it sort of worked. Like I, the, the metal work is mostly stainless steel, and I was able to subcontract a lot of the, that uh, mill, milling work for the metal out, and I did get the kit of parts back for the metal. And I figured out a system of drilling holes and then lining the holes with that brass tubing you can get in hardware stores. I'm not sure if they still stock it. Mm-hmm. That nice sort of telescoping brass tubing. And the stainless steel slides really nicely inside the brass tubing. But it, it even though once you get all the parts back, it's fairly fussy to assemble it, so each one, I wasn't a good enough fabricator for all the parts to be interchangeable, so each chair took some sort of fussing and custom making. But they worked, and um, there's a few things that are sort of interesting about it. I mean, I think in the end, it's really, truthfully, it's more of a stool than a chair. It has a little backrest, hits you at a decent height, lumbar support, but it's not a particularly comfortable chair. And also, because of the math, um, if you want the seat to be wide enough for comfortable sitting, it, it, there's other the mathematics and the physics of it works out so that the seat's fairly high. It's a little, it's not a 17 and a half inch seating height, uh, but it, it's fine um, for what it, for what it is. Are the hangers on the wall 
part of the part of the chair itself or just independent of the chair? The hangers on the wall are independent. So that's, you know, definitely a riff on the shaker chair peg. Um, so the cha- hanger on the wall stays on the wall and the chair lifts in and out of it. And so I don't know exactly how, but the chair got a fair amount of publicity. It got picked up, you know, it wasn't on Instagram, but it got picked up in design mags. And so it actually, of all my pieces, that's the one that got the most sort of visual coverage in the design world. And um, I got, I kind of got known as the folding chair guy, which was nice. It was really important for my career. And I was also approached, in a really interesting chapter with the folding chair was, I was approached by an Italian manufacturer in, um, somehow through New York. They found me in New York, I think through a gallery. And they approached me and asked if they could uh, consider the chair for production. So I tried to learn a little bit about copyright and how, how it all works. And I did a few things, like I took a care, I had a careful measured drawing, and I folded it up and mailed it to myself in a registered on, dated envelope, and I kept it sealed. I think I still have it yeah. in my file cabinet, uh, sort of a poor man's copyright. And um, in the end, you know, we had mm-hmm. some back and forth and this and that, and and then I gave them all the information I had about the chair, and they took it to their um, factory in in Italy. And I, you know, I was really excited about this because I, really, you know, I really admired what was coming out of Italy and and that idea that they have that sort of small scale factory production capability. And to their credit, you know, they looked at it and they um, showed it to their production people on the floor. And I think they were probably correct. They said. It's a, you know they they told me that um, the people the people on the factory floor felt like it wasn't a good object for production because it was too fussy, and it, it's really interesting. I mean, if you look at what does make it into production, it has certain sort of characteristics and qualities, um, and so they they said they didn't want to put it in production. But to their credit, they didn't they never made a ripoff, uh, or I haven't seen any ripoffs out there. And they just said thanks, but no thanks. And I don't even think there was any money that ever exchanged hands, so it was fine. I mean, we had a fairly rudimentary legal contract, and they honored it. So I was a little disappointing, but it was I learned a ton through that back and forth. And so I became the fabricator, and as I said, I made this sequence of additions. Um, and I made them starting in 80. I made the first prototype in 80. I think it would have been spring of 82. And um, I and so by eighty six eighty seven, I was kind of tired of making the folding chair, and so I, it became more and more in demand, and I was getting approached more and more, and so I raised the price. But that didn't really seem to damp down the demand, and so I um, I stopped making it. And over the years, I sold a lot, especially in New York City, because I think there was something about the way it could fold up and be stored on the wall that very much fit with the sort of tightness of New York City apartments. I mean, back, back in those days, even people with a lot of money had pretty small apartments. <laughs> Not anymore. Did the animation for it come about more recently than... Is that something that you did, that animation? It's, it's really, it's really kind of cool seeing it unfold. So um, Matthew Hebert from San Diego State, mm-hmm. he, he helped with that animation. Yeah. And that was actually done for the recent traveling show I had called Please, Please, Please. And that was curated by Glenn Adamson. And it was almost all my most recent body of work. But he felt like the folding chair was a good reference. And he 
So it included this piece from 1985 or something, and then the rest of the work was from now. Um, and so we had that animation to just kind of explain it. There's a body of work I could talk about that's kind of interesting about how, what I was trying to do and then what really happens. So I'd made this series of work probably in the later 80s that I, I call them earthquake tables. And they're, they're tables that are made with uh, stacked okay. up legs. And sometimes the legs are discs that are then stacked up eccentrically on a threaded rod. So it looks like a camshaft. And then sometimes they were cubes, they were stacked up cubes, but in all cases they were done along a piece of threaded rod with a bolt at the bottom. So they're very strong, there's no issue about the structure, and they were relatively quick to make. It might, it looks a little bit on the round camshafty ones, it looks a little bit like maybe you could rotate the parts, but you can't, they're, they're bonded together to create a single stacked up leg. And they were relatively quick to make. So on the round mm -hmm. ones, it was lathe-turned forms that are then chopped and assembled with a hole and a threaded rod with a T-nut buried somewhere in the top and a bolt on the, a nut on the bottom. So they're very strong. And the woodworking could be done relatively quickly. Uh, and then what, ha what has happened to me over and over, sort of in the course of my career, is I get really involved in the surface treatments. And I love experimenting with color and paint and pattern. And so I often, often spend a lot longer on the surface treatments than I do on, on the actual construction of the object. And so those earthquake tables were, you know, maybe moderately successful in that idea of working faster. But then I, you know, I didn't have a quick way to generate the kinds of surfaces I wanted. So they ended up being, you know, a little bit fussy there. But that's maybe one of the more successful approaches to working quickly and getting some pretty good visual or an aesthetic mileage. Um, let me think about other... Well, I mean, the other thing, I keep returning over many decades, I've returned to bandsaw boxes. I love bandsaw boxes. I just think they're really cool. The whole concept mm -hmm. of working subtractively and then reversing it and then working additively. So cutting, starting with a block, cutting it apart, subtracting sections, and then going back to the additive process and putting it back together and getting into the sort of angles and the curves and get, you know, to the point where you can get really confused or I can't remember what I figured out how to do. And so I love to continuously revisit bandsaw boxes as a way to work fairly quickly. Um, and if you went in my studio right now, I have about six or eight bandsaw boxes that I'm experimenting with. Um, so I keep going back to that. I love that. And you also seem to keep on going back to seating objects as well. There, there were some, there were some boxes that you sit on in your latest show, as well as, you know, again, you've done a, a quite a large series yeah. of, of chairs. In fact, I'd say chairs and seating objects are probably, you know, as a function, probably one of some of your largest body, largest body of your work. Is there? A... Yes, I would say if I had to, to look at looking back at my body of work, it would be seating objects and um bo uh, box forms or or chest forms that have um empty volumes in inside chairs are the first of all chairs are like the or design object they're like the uber design object it's the it's the most basic um thing right and and so you start with just a tree stump in the forest that you can just stick your butt on and sit on and then it evolves from there 
And I, it seems to me, you know, if you look at the history of chair design, chairs should be done like every chair should have been built by now. How can anybody possibly still make a good original chair? And then, you know, you're scrolling through, you're scrolling through a good design blog and you see, you know, people are still generating fabulous new chairs that you see it and you go, wow, that's amazing. So I think it's really incredible that after all the history of chair design, there is still room to innovate in, in chair design. There's an awful lot of boring repetition, but people still make amazing new chairs. And, uh, and think about, you know, every damn big name architect thinks he should design, he or she should design a chair. They've all done chairs. Some are great and some not so great. Um, but so I like the way chairs exist in the architecture world, the design world, the art world. I think there's some amazing art, artists who have played with the functional um, chair form. And so that's, that's what I like about seating. And then the other thing about the chair is this connection to the human body. It's like you can't get any more directly connected to the human body. The terminology we use to describe the parts of chairs comes from the human body. Legs, arms. So it has that direct connection to the human body. And then the other thing about chairs is the way it organizes more than one person in space. And so there's a single chair and how you sit on a single chair. And that can be interesting in itself. You sit frontwards or some chairs you sit backwards. And some chairs make you sit a certain way. But maybe I'm more interested in how multiple seating situations organize people in space in relationship to each other. Right. Although I am intrigued, and I think Rob and I are both intrigued by the what is what's the the chair that is both a rocker and a uh -huh. ladder back <laughs> in one chair. Okay. The, how how do you pronounce that? Ladder back cabredal. So it's just the um what's it called when something reads the same, when you do it frontwards and backwards. Uh, onomatopoeia is that that one? Anyways, it's just ladder back backwards. Yeah, I mean, I think visually that's in a group of work that I did that's very, you know, pretty directly riffing on shaker ladder back chairs. And I did um, I did a set of rocking, of double rocking chairs that are just playing with the notion of rocking. So that was um, just the idea that one might have both a conventional chair and a rocking chair and you would be able to choose which side you wanted did you want a conventional chair do you want a rocker you just turn it upside down so it's uh you know it's not that it's a pretty heavy complicated object i think maybe you know what's in some ways what's the most interesting about it is when you're sitting in whichever one you have down you've got the other one sort of perched over your head which is a sort of an interesting sensation when you're sitting in the chair. And I think I especially like when you have it in the rocking mode, there's a lot of mass up above your head. And so when, as it rocks back and forth, it's sort of like a metronome because it's got a big weight up at, up at the top. So even if you're not sitting in it and you just rock it, it sort of rocks back and forth for a while because you don't usually have that much weight up high above the chair. And I miscalculated the physics of it the first time. I didn't make the rockers long enough on the backside. And so eventually I had to I had to put in longer rockers so it wouldn't tip over backwards. But it was, I don't know how you figure that out. I just took made a sort of educated guess and I made them too short. <laughs> Experimentation, yeah. yeah. I was always puzzled by the, wow. those Maloof rockers. The rockers stick way out in the back. And I always, I, that always struck me. Um, but I think he's right. I think he knew what he was doing. 
um, when he made those rockers stick way out in the back. But anyways, um, he probably fell over, probably fell over maybe. a couple of times <laughs> to figure it out. Um, <laughs> that chair is not necessarily the most direct uh, solution to a seating problem. It's more of a visual essay about a seating situation. So it's this sort of playing with this notion of here's two chairs in one. Um, might not be the easiest chair in the world to use, but you'll get some sort of interesting sensations as you interact with this object and figure out how to use it. Well, and the other thing that I find really intriguing by that piece is, is that it's about the experience of using a chair. Right. I mean, there's two very different experiences, rocking and right. sitting in a right. chair. And, you know, the ladder back necessarily makes you sit very upright. Right. And in a way, most of us are pretty uncomfortable because totally. <laughs> we want to slouch. Yeah. And yet, but the rocker is, the rocker's all about comfort. So you get to choose these two entirely different experiences in sitting. Yeah. And, you know, and of course, then again, you know, the ominous thing of this, this huge chair seat sitting over your head. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a <laughs> but, really good uh, point. But if you think about it, the Frank Lloyd Wright chairs, the uh, Charles Rennie Macintosh chairs, the ones that I grew up, you know, drooling and salivating over and admiring, they're hideously uncomfortable. They're, and all the shaker ladderbacks, I <laughs> yeah. love the way they look, but the shaker ladderbacks are not particularly comfortable. Right. Well, that was probably more to do with the shaker aesthetic because they weren't really interested in being comfortable. They lived pretty uncomfortable lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Yeah. I think, you know, if you'd like to talk about your chess and what you're doing currently. Um... Okay, so let me think about chess. I think maybe some interesting ones to talk about might be the ones that are called multiple complications. If you just take the outline, it's like a super basic chest of drawers, sort of like your most classic four-drawer chest. And then the only compli the complication in, in this case is that each of the four drawers has um, drawers inserted into it. So the front, mostly these drawers are access to the front. So the big drawer front also has littler drawer fronts uh, distributed in various places on those littler drawer fronts. And inside of the big drawer, those are closed. If you were to open the big drawer and look inside, those are closed boxes which have their own drawer front which pulls out. And they almost all pull out the front of the cabinet. There's a couple of situations where you, if you pull the big drawer out, you actually access a second drawer from the side. And so that gets a little more complicated and dimensional. But what, the, what I was after there was complicating the spaces and making an object that um, um, is not quite as normal as it first appears and has some challenges in the way that one might use it. And it, it, the thing I like about chess of drawers is they automatically engage the user because they have these sort of empty, undesignated spaces. So the user has to decide what's going to go in there. And I've, I've pretty much resisted sort of putting specific things inside of those interior spaces. I've left them as, as empty spaces. And, um, and so the challenge with these pieces is what's the correct way to use these various sort of boxes that create these somewhat complicated, uh, spaces. So I guess you would, you know, you'd start out by opening the big drawers and seeing what you've got for a big drawer space. And then you have these other littler, spaces that you have responsibility as a user for um, managing and, and using. And so it's a little bit of a challenge to you as a user to um, figure out that interaction. 
And then I think even before I did the multiple complications, another one that is somewhat thinking along some similar lines is the um, chest of drawers that has um, 18 different drawers. And the whole, you know, that shaker sort of meticulous proportion thing was always really appealing to me. And I think in that concentration chest of drawers, you can see that it has some of that shaker aesthetic. But the, the game, the, the sort of problem set here was to make a chest of drawers where every drawer was different in size. And so it went from the very, very smallest drawer you could make that would only hold a straw or a pencil or a paintbrush to a very, very big drawer, like probably almost too big for a sort of handmade wooden drawer. And, uh, and then everything in between. So the drawers both get wider and deeper as you go from the upper left to the lower right. And every drawer is a different size. And that was, that was sort of the, the format. And that's easy. But then what got hard was figuring out how does it, you get it to actually look good. Like how do you get the proportions to work? And so I spent a lot of time with that getting sort of moving drawer spacings and getting proportions right. And I was interested both in the relationship of the drawers and the painted striping, how the painting, painted striping progresses from smaller to larger. But also in all the math, the, there's a central knob on each drawer that you grab to pull it out. The knobs have to line yeah. up in, in a way that makes sense. And so <laughs> it, there was quite a bit of um, sort of erasing on my master drawing to get things in the right place. And it was sort of intuitive math. I didn't quite know how to figure it out using mathematical calculations. So I did it visually just on, on a drawing. So it was a lot of time spent drawing that piece out to get it to work aesthetically. The, you know, the interesting thing to me about these pieces and about some of the chair pieces is your, is your use of all these sort of linear elements to delineate mm -hmm. size and scale. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that seems to be a thread that runs through a lot of your work. Yep. Is you know these carved these carved lines that that help you that define forms as well as define scale like they do in the concentration. I mean, uh, you know, the the bigger drawer has the biggest has the biggest carved stripes on it. The smallest drawer has very small carved stripes on it. What's the what do you think is the origin of that idea? I'm not sure I'll say it any better, but I'll, I mean, I'll maybe point out a couple of things. So part of it comes from. Uh, I never really took a formal color class, and so I learned color kind of by teaching myself. And I, I have to admit that, um, you know, the Joseph Albers book about color, uh, the thing that I've always carried forward from it is color is really about the interaction of color. It's like it doesn't hardly matter what the color is. You can make it do certain things by what you put next to it. And so I've always been especially interested in how colors affect each other. And I, for example, I really like sort of boring grays, which are really boring until you put something interesting in relationship to them. So the thing that I like about stripes is that they, um, these are bands of color or whatever, is this sort of direct relationship that's set up between colors adjacent to each other and how to manage that and how to get those colors to talk to each other in an interesting way. And so I spent a lot of time just um, at the work, at the my mixing table. With, I'm working a lot of the time with powdered milk paint, which I then use um, mm -hmm. golden fluid acrylics to kind of add to the color vocabulary and to mix in. Um, and so 
I spend a lot of time fine-tuning colors and playing around with colors. Uh, I mean, I know now there's this whole sort of range of blues and greens and yellows that I really, really, really love. And I'm pretty sure part of the reason I love working with those colors is that wood is basically sort of, you know, covers a broad range of tones, but it's mostly on that sort of brown, brown tan end of the color wheel. And I love what's happening over on the other side with the blues and the greens and the purples and a little bit of yellow uh, in, in the terms of the way it speaks to wood tones. Um, and so part of that interest in linear patterning is that color contrast. And so it's both the contrast of the painted colors and then I'm doing a lot of hand carving and putting texture in. And usually when I paint on top, I'm working back through to the wooden surface so that there, so that part of the wood is showing through. And so I'm getting sort of a free extra color band in there, which is the ridge of the wood coming back up through the paint usually. And um, so I mm-hmm. like, I just like that whole interaction. One of the things that's important for me with the with the linear patterning is I'm using it as a way to describe form and to lead the eye around a form in a certain specific composition. So a line, a carved, a line, carved line or a painted line is actually very hard for your eye to land on and stop. Your eye lands on a line and follows that line. And so you can use that line as a way to lead the viewer's eye around the piece and point out certain things. So we talked about this a little bit with the folding chair. I'm really interested in edges that describe planes. And so often I'm working with pattern and color to make the edges of things stand out. And I also tend to use a fair amount of joinery, which is not necessarily flesh smooth. Uh, I often run ends past each other in the way... um, I mean, Garrett Rietveld was influential on me in that way. He had those uh, joints that everything runs past each other. And I like the visual complication of joints that aren't necessarily smooth and invisible, but are instead um, more complex and generate more angles and interactions and proportions to play with. The beauty of, of surfaces that don't line up is they're much looser and they're not as fussy. When things have to line up perfectly, it requires precision, and precision is a good thing, but it also it, it inhibits your ability to be free. And it does put a, uh, to me, there is something very visually tight about Scandinavian work or, or vintage cabinetry that's very precise. Yep. It does not speak to looseness, yep. whereas edges that go past each other sort of naturally, they carry your eye beyond the form and they, and they make it loose. Spot, you're spot, you're spot on. Let's uh, in a, in the in our last few minutes here. Let's talk about your recent work and and where you are, where you're moving forward to, what your latest work's about, and where you hope it to go. Well, first, I'll tell you what I'm working on right now. I'm I'm working towards an installation, which is going to be in a gallery uh, south of Madison, a really cool gallery that has a project room. And um, Katie Hudnall, who's taken over the wood program at Madison. And I submitted a proposal to do an installation in that room that has to do with um, boxes. And so we're each making our own body of work around boxes. And then we're also doing a collaboration that's going to involve um, making a box and then passing it to the other person. And so we're going to box each other's boxes and see how far that goes and how complex that that gets and we haven't we we're just starting so we don't know quite where it's going to go but I'm I'm pretty excited about that 
Um, uh, I like the idea. Of- that sounds exciting. It really does. <laughs> right. And, and we've actually interviewed Katie in an earlier segment and, uh, we have a whole, we actually have a little slideshow <laughs> of Katie's sketchbook, which is wonderful that you can see on our YouTube channel. But Katie is a very free, very fluid, right. very fast worker. Right. <laughs> so it's, uh, again, it'll be very interesting to see how you two collaborate. Katie, I would say Katie's practice is built around drawing and, and kind of a constant sort of ongoing uh, note, visual note taking. And uh, I, I work very differently. I sort of putts in the studio and sort of play with an idea, mostly hands-on, unless I technically, some of the pieces that I technically have to draw it in order to understand what I'm trying to do or how it's going to work. But I tend to be more of an intuitive, hands-on worker. So it'll be kind of interesting to see how that that plays out. But I'm pretty close, she doesn't know, but I'm pretty close to having four boxes that I'm going to deliver to her um, and see what she does with them. Well, we won't tell her. That's what's going to happen over the next couple of months. I think that, you know, the last um, traveling exhibition I had was it had some of the cyanotypes. And I also worked with um, brand, with burning paper with brand, um, brands and mark making on paper using fire. And so <laughs> I think in a way I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in um, two dimensional work and um, but I, I like using, and maybe this goes all the way back to the photograms where our conversation started, but I just loved cyanotypes and working with the cyanotypes as a form of photogram. And then also I, I cut out these, um, metal brands and, and actually used red hot metal brands on paper for a set of mark making. And so that was the two dimensional work in the exhibition, which was called Please, please, please. And it was in San Francisco, San Diego, Houston, and just ended in Philadelphia. And um, the okay. main, probably the main body of that work were uh, benches that I made using uh, some found objects, which were primarily um, to old tools and especially shovels. And um, it has a sort of a funny or- origination story. And that was <clears throat> when we moved to Madison, and we had these long winters in Madison. Uh, in the spring, when it finally got warm, and people were confident it wasn't going to snow again, I noticed there was a couple of weeks or a month in the spring where there would be all these old shovel handles sticking out of people's garbage cans. Before we had these kind of modern plastic bins with lids, and I thought they were really great, and I started collecting them and just grabbing them. And in those days, they were quite beautiful you know wood they were wood and metal or all wood even sometimes and I built up a fairly large collection and my initial thought was I wanted to make a fence out of them but I never quite had the volume to um, to make a fence and so I started experimenting with them as parts on furniture and I used use them for legs and I've used them for backrests and um, I'm, I had never really worked with slabs of, of wood, sort of Nakashima-ish slabs of wood, but I got really interested in the um, sort of urban wood, um, there, and there were actually two places in Madison that were had really interesting sort of profiles where they were cutting down urban trees, slabbing them, kiln-drying them, and selling and selling them as kiln-dried slabs, and incredibly beautiful and so in a way it was almost sort of a return to some of the work of the people that were in the generation before me 
um, Nakashima, especially the you know the slabs look quite Nakashima esque, and um, was a kind of a new aesthetic for me working with the natural wood. But I, I had a lot of fun um, sort of cleaning up the live edges and figuring out the way to handle them. But I, I worked with some old scythe. I also worked with some old scythe handles. And um, and I guess I you know I partly like the repurposing the no longer useful tools, and I like using the urban wood. So I don't you know I don't know where that's going to go. I don't know if I'm done with that. I have a whole wall of my studio now with um, saved up tool handles. The interesting juxtaposition there is the maker meets the tool, as opposed to uh, you know using the tool as a as a as a functional piece of the the object as opposed to usually the other way around is the tool makes the object no that's a good good observation but i think another thing for me is um i'm just not so interested in the sort of perfect meticulous object and i'm more interested in one of the way that would uh as one uses it and it experiences wear and tear can you design your objects so that they actually look better and better as they get that sort of use um, use patina? And I think that's partly you know why so many of us like that look of the milk paint, where the final process in the milk paint, at least for me, is I sand it and steel wool it fairly aggressively so that it sort of has that worn look. And and I like and I, I hope for or what I shoot for is that as the object gets used. Uh, the first, it's not like a new car where the first scratch and the second scratch and the tenth scratch are really painful. It's where that's just what happens as you use the object and it's, it's totally fine. And so I think that's partly what appeals to me about the tool handles is what makes those tool handles so cool is the sort of what's happened to them over the years, either from the hand or somebody spray painting the thing bright orange so nobody will use their, their shovel. Uh, or all those sorts of things are the electrical tape repairs that people do so that they can use it for another week. Um, I, I like that aspect uh, of the of the materials. Well, that's that seems like a wonderful metaphor for uh, for wrapping <laughs> it up because I mean uh, we're all we're all that car after the hundredth scratch <laughs> or that piece of furniture that piece of. You know, the the perfect object that is, you know, right. has been damaged. And that's how we are. That's that's life as we grow old. I've, <laughs> I've got more than I got my 10,000th scratch. I've uh, I've duct taped all the elbows together and uh, the shovel still works, kind of. But I'd like to thank Tom Loser for being on Why Make. And uh, as we end all our sessions on Why Make, Why Make? Why Make? Why Make? You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or direct download from our website, why-make.com. This episode is currently brought to you by the Holy Pockets of Rob and Eric. Please help us build our creative funding base at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash why make podcast. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at why make pod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening.